this week, though, um, my mind has been pretty preoccupied with how smoky our horizons have been. Uh, and I don't know whether this has touched any of you personally, but I've been reading the stories about the people who made it out, in some cases, just barely. And there are tragically other cases in which people didn't make it out, in some cases, just barely. And we live in a world in which things are, are, are close. Precisions are tight, but we kind of want to be precise about the wrong things sometimes. And I don't want to appropriate other people's misery for my own self-reflection more than is prudent. On the other hand, did anybody else this week think, if I knew I could get out safely if I left right now with my family and my pets, and my neighbors were going to be okay because they're doing the same thing, what would I grab on my way out? I have to leave now. And I actually, I spent some time thinking about that uh, this week. And assuming that we come to life here, which we appear not to want to do, fabulous. All right, I guess I get to rely on you, Karen. Thank you. Um, Oddly, the first thing that came to mind, it wasn't anything valuable, it wasn't anything spectacular. What it was is a zucchini bread recipe. And uh, it's special for two reasons. One is that's mom's zucchini bread recipe. It's written in a handwriting that's I recognize it immediately, and it matters to me. And she's not going to be writing any more recipe cards for me. But you know what? While I could picture it in my head, I could not put my hands on this in two minutes. I found it, but it wouldn't have been something I could have saved. And, and you know, would that be the first thing on my mind? I don't, I don't know. Who knows what the first thing on your mind is? There's another thing that came to my mind. I got married in the pre-digital age, which means I, I don't have electronic copies of these. And, you know, I already said when I'm doing this thought exercise that my family makes it out with me. So this isn't going to be the memory that I have of Karen. But nonetheless, it commemorates a day that was special, that portends hope and future. That's a pretty good thing. But you know what? I had to move some heavy stuff in order to get that out of the, the closet where it sits. That wouldn't have come with me. And oddly enough, the thing that was easiest for me to keep was this bad boy. This is a Stanley number 85 cabinet maker's hand plane. It's a relatively rare plane, uh, partly because there weren't that many cabinet makers who needed to have the cool feature of the handle can be tilted so that you don't bang your knuckles on the cabinetry as you plane it. Um, 
So it's worth a little bit of money, but not enough that you'd, that would be the thing you'd save. But it's got this splotch of, of yellow paint on it because my grandfather was <laughs> a teacher and some of his tools were accessible. And it's got his initials stamped in one side, which lowers the value to anybody who's not me. And it doesn't just represent the craftsman that my grandfather was, but it reminds me of my father and his love for his dad, his respect for his dad and what his dad could do. And the weird thing about all of that is that None of these things are things that really, if I had to grab them and, and head out of the fire, would do me any good for a long time after the house went up, right? Which, we're going to be looking here in Ephesians at Paul, who, remember, Tim mentioned this last week, did not live a life of, you know, wealth and affluence and ease, he had a life that nobody would sign up for, and yet he did. And it was powered by something beyond what we normally think about. And you know what he grabbed before he left the burning building? Well, let's talk a little bit more about it. We are in still the book of Ephesians. We're in chapter 3, and we'll start with verse 14. And we're going to go through verse 21, and this is going to be a little bit of a choppy experience this morning because I am going to go kind of verse by verse, read the verse, talk about it, read the verse, talk about it. So if you want to open the Pew Bible to page 1135, that will give you the opportunity to provide context for yourself as Paul starts and stops his sentences. For this reason, he says, I kneel before the Father. Okay. Paul does this all the time for this reason. Is it the thing immediately preceding what he's saying now, or is it something bigger? Well, the thing immediately preceding was kind of a digression, so it's probably not, okay, there's too much. Let me sum up. We go back. Paul's thinking big thoughts, and this, the big thoughts are what he's returning to here. What happens in the book of Ephesians? We talked about things like God, all-powerful and yet full of grace, takes people who are dead, who can't meet his standard ever, and provides Christ who makes them alive. Those people are then given a new identity and a new purpose in God's economy. So we're taken from death to life, and that life has a purpose. And Paul has just gotten through explaining that while everybody would have expected that the people who were eligible for this awesome Groupon deal were the, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that there was a big wall up between them. And Paul has said, no, that has been knocked down. There is no longer a wall that says, because you are in this family, you can be okay with God. Now, those of us who didn't physically descend from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob can join the family through faith. 
And last week, Tim talked about Paul administrating this good news. He's delivering it wherever it's needed to these, these people who don't know anything about the God that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew, loved, and worshipped. And this has become the passion of his life. It's become his primary focus. And for that reason, he kneels before the Father. And so I have to ask you the question, what makes you kneel before the Father? You go, why is the kneel underlined? In your bulletin, you should find an insert that may help you keep notes just so you've got something if you're kinesthetic to follow along with. And there are some blanks, and where there's a blank, there's going to be a slide that fills in the blank for you. That's going to help because these same questions can be used in the small groups that meet this week, and you probably don't want to make up your own blank fillers. Just a word to the wise, though, they pretty much come from the text. By the way, if, if you decide that my monotone is too droning, you can always do the word search on the back. <laughs> All right. All right, if we uh, continue on then to the next. So I want to I wanna couple these things. Kneel to the Father. What does make you kneel to the Father? Is there anything that makes you kneel to the Father? And you say, you know, Mike, I'm a couple of joint replacements past doing a whole lot of kneeling. Fine, I'm on the other side of that. I'll be there soon, and uh, I, I sympathize. You might have a, a different reason, and you say, I bow to no one. You might have a different reason and say, I don't understand why I need to bow to the Father. He has accepted me, and I'm his child. Why do I need to kneel? And Paul's kind of going to address this. He says, the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Paul's doing a dad pun here. Uh, the word father and the word family in Greek are related. And so he's saying that the father and the family, you can't have the one without the other. Family gets its name from fatherhood in Greek. Okay, what's the point of that dad pun? The, the point of the dad pun is you don't have to be able to say, I had a great dad in order to have a great dad. And for a lot of people, there, there isn't what my father had, which was an earned respect for his father. There is an earned disrespect for father. There is a chasm with father. There is... Nothing but misunderstanding and pain, potentially. And for most people, it's more like a mix. There are some good things and there are some bad things. But what Paul is saying is, remember who we're dealing with. Don't let the word father trigger one picture in your mind when this is a whole different deal that we've got going on. So, Two things we should remember about this. The first is that any sense of family, and I mean our biological or community families, 
as well as spiritually, any sense of family originates in the person, plan, and power of God. And that's why Paul is using this father language. It's why he's thrown in this pun with family. He's saying, look, the whole concept of family comes from God. And you say, Mike, I'm a modern person. And fatherhood and family are more about passing along genetic material to the next generation and the generation after that. And I'll say, sure, that's a function of that. But you know what? Family is about more than just keeping the genes alive. Family is about training more than survival. Family is about bearing with for more than just living. A good family is one in which you can experience being known and understood and appreciated anyway. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Because if anybody in this room thinks that they bring no grief to their family, um, well, let's talk afterwards, because I, I haven't met anyone yet like that, and I like my family, but you only have to hang out with people a little while to know that they've got some, some flaws. Okay, so God's all about family, and God's family extends beyond earth to heaven because his plans and power are just bigger. You say, okay, what, what's this whole heaven and earth thing? Every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. What families are there in heaven who derive their name from God the Father? I think Paul is talking about the fact that God is looking at a big picture that we don't look at. So when I look at that recipe card, I don't say to myself generally, mom's part of my family in heaven and we are still connected by a family bond that's vibrant. Why don't I do that? Because I've got a short-term view of the world. God has created a whole different dynamic that says, my value isn't just in the here and now, and it's not just to you, but it continues. In the Old Testament, what happens to the good that people do? It lasts a thousand generations. There's something that happens in God's family economy that lasts forever. And there's something really special about that. It's bigger and bolder and better than our conception of what family is. So why does it matter to you that we are family, whether in heaven or on earth? This is a hard question. I don't expect you to have an immediate answer, though some may. The question is, as you think about it, can you actually wrap your mind about the concept of what does it mean that there's a continuity in God's family from those of us who are here and those of us who have departed? And what hope can I have that's based in that knowledge that God's plan is eternal and that what, what went wrong in my mother's body 
isn't the end of my mother, not just in a fluffy, cloudy perspective, but in eternal experience with God. All right, let's keep going. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Anybody, you know, think a lot about your inner being? It's not really a, the, the contemporary phrase. We, we, we are taught things like mindfulness. Um, and you keep the, the high-level brain functions focused, and it helps overcome the the monkey brain and the lizard brain is what my, my doctor told me recently during a, a, a physical. My inner being, according to Paul, in this book, was dead, and now I have one that's alive. So Paul right here is not talking about somebody who hasn't begun to follow Christ. What he's talking about is, if you're a believer, what needs strengthening? And man, I, I've got a list. I can discern things. It's a nice gift. It has a downside that I can discern things. It doesn't come automatically with patience to bear with foolishness that I can discern. It doesn't come with gentleness in communicating the problems that I see. Where could I get things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control? Oh, the Spirit. These are fruit of the Spirit, and I can demonstrate them in my life by the power of God in my inner being. And this is what Tim has been talking about. He's desiring for all of us a degree of transformation that isn't going to come from mindfulness training, uh, you know, 12-step program, doing, doing good things. Showing up on Sunday doesn't reflect in any way any progress in our inner being being fed and developed by the Spirit. You can do this with the worst attitude in the world. And sometimes you do. Let's keep going. So, if you're to be honest with yourself, where does your inner being need to be strengthened? What of God's glorious riches would you appropriate to, to help where there's a lack? All right, let's keep rolling, Karen. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, I pray that you being rooted and established in love. Rooted and established in love. Rooted and established in love. What does that look like? What, what if I said someone who is rooted and established in love, do you, can you picture a person who you would say, that's them? If I said, rooted and established in love, would you say that about yourself? Would those of us who can interact with you, who see your face when things don't go your way, would, would we agree? 
There were a couple of drivers this week who did not find me rooted and established in love if they noticed me. I suspect they didn't based on their driving, but nonetheless, I demonstrated a dire lack of love. So again, I've got another question for you. What difference does it make? What difference does it make if you've got Christ dwelling in your heart and rooting you in love? How are you different than you would be if you didn't claim that? Who could come and tell me they are different? They are different than they were. They are different than other people. And if that's not the case, maybe you and I need to go back to that, that part about being filled in our inner being by the Spirit with power. Let's roll you may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Okay. He didn't just say big, massive, enormous, gigantic, gargantuan. He, he kind of gives it to us in, in three dimensions, right? Kind of width and length and height and depth. And so the picture that he's trying to give us is there's a lot. Is that your experience of God? Is he a God of, of abundance? When, when you interact with him, are you, do you get full? In fact, let's roll to the next Slide, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Paul's talked about fullness earlier in this, in this letter, but I want to talk about a different kind of fullness. It, Thanksgiving is coming up, and I want to confess to you that for a couple of years in a row, maybe two or three years ago, every Thanksgiving, as we would drive to the place the family event was held, I would be saying, okay, Mike, this year, don't eat so much that you want to die when you're driving home. Because as much as I enjoy mashed potatoes, gravy, and pie, not, not all simultaneously, please, there's such a thing as too much of a good thing at Thanksgiving. And I'm willing to pile that on, and I'm more so than being filled to fullness by God. And there's an experiential component of this that is sort of so beyond our normal experience of God. Many of us have a, a, a rational way of looking at the world. Or we have a rules-based way of looking at the world. Now, some people have an emotional response to the world primarily. And this idea of fullness is a lot more accessible for you if you're like that. But what Paul's pointing to here is it doesn't matter what your favorite way of being stimulated by God is, that the result is supposed to be full in a way you've never been before, can't be before, and it's good. I love the way Jonathan Edwards said this. Now, he didn't say it this concisely. I had to take a, about a page-long paragraph 
and pull a bunch of parenthetical remarks out. But he says, the saints of God are partakers of God's fullness, of God's spiritual beauty, and I think everybody goes, okay, yeah, God is spiritually beautiful, and happiness. Do you think of God as being happy? This is America's foremost theologian, by the way. He's saying we partake of God's fullness not only in getting to share in some of his spiritual beauty, but, but that he's got a happiness that first colors your view of who the Father is. Okay, he's, he's a, a good, good father like we sang. He's a happy father. He's content. He doesn't, he's not walking around like me irritated by, you know, the dumb things that my children have done. I don't want to paint the picture that I'm always like that. I'm just saying I'm a mixed bag. He's not. All right. If we, uh, if we say what would be different about your life if you were overflowing with the fullness of God, it would color everything. It would color everything. It would mean that the, the time I spend during the week preparing to speak is going to be time where I get to talk to God about what his word says, and I get to experience where I have a lack that he can fill, where he's given me something and I notice it, where when I talk to other people about it, maybe they get excited. There, there are things that happen in that process, but there's another way that I can prepare to speak. It's about feeding me, or it's about going through the motions. Now, either thing, it needs to be done. But boy, do you want somebody up here talking because they like it and that's their primary motive? Do you want somebody who's going through the motions? I don't. Does God want you doing what you do for those reasons and with that attitude? So again, we're, we're looking, we, we've got to get something from God in order to have the us who can do things in the right way. And if we don't, then it doesn't matter, you know, how much the rummage sale raises. It doesn't matter how many people come to hear us sing. What the result is, is not pleasing to God because we didn't set out to please God. It wasn't part of our equation. So each one of us, has to soberly contemplate, okay, am I doing this in the joy, the happiness, the fullness of God, or am I going through the motion? Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, and I just said it's so easy to do it for the wrong reason, and Paul snaps us back to why we even try because it's not our effort, he's gonna do the immeasurably more. He's the one who has the supply. So then my, my need is to be connected with him. And that's a whole different problem, really, than, you know, how do I get three points in a story in, in a talk? You don't need God to do that. But to be full with the fullness of God, nobody else can do that. Next, next slide, please. 
So whose power is at work within you? Whose power is at work within you? Are your id and superego, you know, the, the preeminent? Uh, I'm kidding. Or is it the power of God? Is that the primary motivator? And again, I'm not standing here as somebody whose, whose motives are 100% pure. I'm, I'm not, I'm not a, a 99.4% you know, pure soap even. But I'm willing to stand here and admit to you that what I desire is for God's power to do what I do when I talk to a neighbor or a coworker when I greet you, if I stand up here and speak, if I pray for someone. Okay, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, all generations. Can we all do it in the same room at once? Of course not. Can we all do it in God's big picture economy? Yes. Yes, we can. There's, there's, a way, there's a way in which the longer that we live associating ourselves with Christ, the harder it is to maintain that I want to be full, new, from you. This is Revelation 2.2. It's part of a vision that John has and this one is a vision of Jesus telling the church at Ephesus, the namesake of our book, what Jesus thinks of them. I, I've done a little bit of church consulting where you go in and you, you look at things and then you give an opinion. And um, we try to say things nicely because people don't hear things when we say them clearly. Jesus isn't like that. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. That's all good, right? They are, they are continuing to be correct. You persevered, have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. That's fantastic. Keep it up. Keep, keep on that, that track, persevere, keep working, keep being discerning about false teaching. That's fantastic. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. We see a lot of marriages where this is the story. People are still doing the things they always did, but something died inside, and it's never been the same, and nobody knows how to resuscitate that and that happened to the church at Ephesus and they still were able to discern right from wrong and they still were able to do good things and you know what they did not have was what God wanted most for them the whole point of the church's existence of your being in Christ is to know God's love and if you miss out on that then all those other things it's not as big a win as we think they are in the last, last verse. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. 
If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Okay, it's, it's bluntly said. I wouldn't recommend this from a, a, a church advisor. But let's in this friendly place just examine ourselves and say, am I going through the motions? Do I have a mechanism by which I can continue to encounter the love of God in a way that I actually experience it? And especially if you're a person who's, who's mind-controlled or doing-controlled, how, do how do you connect with God? How do you experience all he has for you? So, so I had three things. And I want to give you three ways that you can take this whole concept the wrong way. Because knowing how to misinterpret things is a good way of figuring out how to adjust to doing it right. So, so the plane. If, if instead of having anything to do with my grandfather, this represents people for whom doing is what it's all about, what, what's the way to take all of this wrong? What God wants from me is that I know the right thing to do and I do it. And you know what? Both of those are fantastic things. Knowing what God loves and doesn't love and then doing the things he loves and not doing the things he doesn't love. But if that is your understanding of what God wants, you are missing the mark. What God wants is to be in a love relationship with you where he can fill you up with him, not where you can impress him with your sharp corners. And so you've, you've got to have some of this. You've got to do what he wants. But if you do that because that's how you're going to win his affection or because that's what you do, check yourself. All right, we have, we have this. I'm going to be unkind for a moment. You go, Mike, you've already been unkind. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call this Bible church syndrome. Bible church syndrome says the most important thing is to know what it says. What's written on the card? I've got to know that. And what that can mean is you're not looking for a way to encounter God, for him to tell you the truth about yourself and separate out the lies that you've heard about yourself and believed. You're not listening for him to tell you what to do much at all because the whole point is to continue to pour information in your head that you don't use except to pour information into somebody else's head who won't use it. Say, my guy, that's not my problem. Well, again, here's the problem. You, you do need to bring in information. God's word is living and active as long as you let it do its work. But if you make that the point, if this is a sermon that doesn't reach you because I didn't have any exegetical nuggets that you really love, Are you loving God or are you loving a good rhetorical device? 
There's a third way that we can go wrong with this. Um, and I grew up in a church tradition that was, was a bit more like that, where if you demonstrated an emotional experience of God, that pretty much trumped anything. So it didn't matter how you treated your spouse. It didn't matter how you talked about your fellow believers in your church because you had the emotions going full swing. And I just said that you and I have to have an emotional connection with God. He, he's got to light us up inside somehow. But again, if that's the point, church, we got nothing. Because you can go to a motivational speaker or a TED talk who's going to be a ton better than Tim for that. Or far, far better than me. That can't be the point. The point has to be this father who said, my idea of family is so big that I've broken down the dividing walls between the people who were my people and everyone else. And now everyone can be my people. And you all get to experience it. And somehow we have to aspire to caring about this stuff as much as Paul did. And you go, oh, I'm out then. Okay, I'm not saying that we all need to be Paul. But let's keep something in mind. And that's that our house is burning down. And we had no route out. It was fire 100% around us. And God's response to that was one of ridiculous love. Where he said, God the Son, you, do you want to go rescue them? And God the Son said yes. And he went through the flames and was burnt for us, if you'll pardon the analogy. And he carried us out. And if gratitude to that doesn't point us to, I want to know you, God, Let's check our hearts. Let me pray. God, I've, I've spoken slowly this morning. And I've said some things without giving people a specific mechanism for fixing what they may see I'm pointing at in their lives because I don't know them the way you know them. And so I ask that as we have a moment to reflect, and as the choir comes, that you would give us all the perspective that you want us to have on what's important and on how very desperately you pursued your love for us so that we could know you not in a surface way, but forever and ever in love that fills us up fuller than Thanksgiving dinner. In Jesus' name, amen.